Hi, filling in for your friendly neighborhood, Andre Harrison. We are RJ O'Connell and Ryan Eric King, and welcome to episode 195. Jesus Christ, I can't believe we've been doing this this long of the Motorsport 101 podcast. And you've been doing this longer than I have, King. Yep, I've been here almost every episode. Oh, Lord. <laughs> God, it still feels like yesterday that I just happened to stumble into a guest appearance and I'm now here as your full-time uh, co-host and podcast editor. <laughs> oh, this is going to be a long, long week. Um, we're here for episode 195, where among many other things, we're going to be talking about a uh, Monaco Grand Prix that was, I guess it was all right. I mean, if you grade it on a curve, um, but of course, where there was not a lot of racing action, there were plenty of stories to talk about away from the main race itself in the first leg, the first official leg of Day of Classics for, for Fort's sake. Yeah, like if if I had to like quickly boil down the Monaco Grand Prix to like one statement, I'd say there was a lot, tons of buildup, very little payoff. Right, but there was of course more than just Formula One. We had Formula Two there as well. We'll talk about all the action that happened there, including a phenomenal photo finish in the Saturday sprint race between Antoine Hubert and Louis Delatraz that came down to just 59 one thousandths of a second. Trust me, much better finish than the Formula One payoff. I know we're we're setting tone early and, and giving our fans reason to listen in by just downplaying one of the biggest races of the year. <laughs> um... We have Formula E from Berlin as Lucas Degrassi and Audi take a dominant victory at Tempelhof. And of course, we have uh, we have many other races to talk about, including uh, the Coca-Cola 600, uh, Super GT at Suzuka, Supercars at Winton, and uh, and even some word on a uh, on a growing alliance. Oh God, we're just going to be in one big car company now. <laughs> That's right. We're just we just we just got to accept that one third of the Formula One teams could potentially be owned by the same consortium if the uh, if this merger goes through. So um, so we've got all of that, and we'll talk about it as well. And we'll talk about it on the show. Of course, uh, places you can find us. All of your Motorsport One Hundred One related needs are at Motorsport One Hundred One dot com. Um, we are on youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101, facebook.com forward slash motorsport 101. Uh, we're on Twitter at motorsport underscore 101. And if you wish to follow us personally, you can at Harrison101HD. That's for Dre, who is still on vacation. Dre's, Dre will be back here for our next bit of episodes. I am RJ O'Connell on Twitter. Ryan is Ryan Eric King. That's with two Ks. Um, and of course... Viewers and listeners like you can back us financially at patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101. For just $5 a month, you get early access to all of our shows. And for just $10 a month, you can listen to every show live as it's being recorded. It's a little bit later than usual. Um, of course, uh, real life got in the way of that, but we still got a good crowd of of uh, Charlie listening in from Canada, Cam listening in with gauze in his mouth, uh, Stephen is here, and Rezzy is here um, at some, well, more civilized time of morning in Indonesia. Yeah, so you can be a part of that for just $10 a month, backing us on patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Now, last week, we 
recorded our episode uh, in the build-up to the Indianapolis 500 and the Monaco Grand Prix. And shortly after we recorded, we learned the sudden and tragic passing of Andreas Nicholas Lauda, who we knew as Nicky Lauda. Um, after we take a, a short break, we'll look back on the life and the legacy of one of Formula One's greatest champions. Nicky Lauda left us last Monday. He was 70 years old. He had been battling through numerous uh, complications with his health, including a recent double lung transplant. And we were so eagerly awaiting his return to the Formula One paddock. And ultimately, that will never come. Uh, Nicky, of course, in recent days was best known as a figurehead and non-executive chairman of the Mercedes-AMG Patronus F1 team, and we'll talk about that. But, you know, his story in racing starts uh, with his very humble beginnings, King, um, because he was not a driver who stood out early on in his career. Um, he spent 1971 and 72 after climbing from Formula 2. He broke in with the March engineering team in 71, Moved on to BRM in 1973, and for much of his early career, he he seemed a very pedestrian driver, did he not? Yeah, I would probably say that if you made the assumptions about Nicky Lauda before he came to Formula One, you'd assume that he was just some, you know, rich kid who wanted to drive real fast, wasn't taking this 100% seriously, but if you dug a little deeper, you knew how hard he was trying to be, you know, as good as he could be behind the wheel. That's true. Lauda had plenty of experience racing. He raced Formula V cars, I guess today's equivalent of a Formula 4 championship. He drove uh, sports cars early on in his career. He moved up to Formula 2 uh, in in 71. But, you know, he was a driver who 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 had to buy his way into the sport but even though he came from a very rich family, um, he had none of his family's support. He, this family openly disapproved of his racing activities, and that ultimately caused them to, to feud with them, and you know they eventually lost contact. Um, Lauda's first big uh, break came when he took out a 30,000-pound bank loan and secured by a life insurance policy to buy his way into March in 71. Um, and he had to take out quite another substantial loan in 73 as he was moving up to BRM, a team that had, you know, quite a bit of history in the sport, but they were very much a team in decline in, in 73. They were not by any means a, a noted powerhouse. Uh, years removed from their last uh, last great successes with after Graham Hill had moved on. Uh, but yeah. even, though, even though Lauda... Um, he only had a, a fifth-place finish at Belgium to his name as his best result. There was genuine speed there. Yeah, there's, with, there uh, was speed there. It was like them acquiring the services of Nicky Lauda was a part of this big rebuilding project at Ferrari itself. Because when they signed Nicky Lauda, they also signed uh, uh, first as Enzo's assistant. But then the next season, he would become team principal himself. Luca de Montezemolo, that's when he came to Ferrari at the same time as Nicky Lauda. Yeah, that is uh, that's a very interesting point. And one of the other drivers who was part of uh, 
BRM's attempt at rebuilding in 73 was a, was a Swiss driver by the name of Clay Regazzoni. And uh, he was brought into Ferrari in 1974 when Ferrari also realized, hey, they had, a, they had another vacancy left. And uh, Enzo Ferrari asked Clay Regazzoni what he thought of Lauda. And Regazzoni said he spoke so favorably of Lauda that Ferrari promptly signed him, paying enough to clear his debts with his two bank loads. And from there, the fuse was lit, King, when he joined Ferrari. It only took him until his fourth race in Spain. But once he won in, at the Harama circuit, things really started to take off from there, didn't it? Yes, where it, I wouldn't say a total sea change, but it went from Ferrari, you know, fighting just to score points to them, you know, maybe looking at a possible world championship. Yeah, because, of course, you have to remember the season before, Ferrari didn't even manage so much as a single podium finish. And it's funny, we'll, of course, crack on Ferrari's misfortunes nowadays, but there was a time where making the podium wasn't even a guarantee for Ferrari. And uh, the dysfunction at that organization was portrayed quite nicely in a, uh, in a very iconic scene from the Ron Howard-directed movie Rush which is, of course, a retelling, a dramatized retelling of the rivalry between James Hunt and Nicky Lauda. And they cover his arrival at Ferrari. And, of course, there is the very legendary exchange with Lauda and the Ferrari mechanic. Uh, when asked upon his first impressions, uh, Lauda s- describes it as a shitbox. All of these facilities, and you build a piece of crap like this. And that's That, that kind of encapsulates the, the man that Nicky Lauda was. He was a no-nonsense tell-it-as-it-is sort of character, the kind that Formula One fans of a certain age wish there was more of it. He was unfiltered and absolutely uncompromising. He was not just some rich kid doing it as a hobby. He was dedicated and serious to his craft, and that showed when he won two races in 74, finished fourth in the championship, and then he took another massive leap forward in 75 with five victories, including huge, huge victories in Monaco, in Belgium, at the French Grand Prix, and of course, with a win in the 75 United States Grand Prix, wrapping up his first championship. And of course, it seemed in 1976 that he would be well on his way to winning another after winning four of his first six races. He had five wins during the season, going up to the 10th round of the season critical turning point in Nicky Lauda's career. Yeah, it's, it's almost like his whole life is, you know, after that point, revolved around 1977. Yes, this would of course be the German Grand Prix at the Nürburgring short circuit, which of course included the infamous Nordschleife section. Uh, Lauda was very concerned about the conditions, uh, the Nordschleife, of course, infamous for not necessarily being one of the safest tracks, especially in a time where Formula One was starting to get serious about safety. Um, he attempted to arrange a boycott of the race, but the other drivers voted against it, and by a margin of just one vote, the race went ahead. Now, Lauda was, of course, one of the best drivers at that circuit. It's not that he was it's not that he was, you know, afraid of the track itself. He was afraid of the conditions that would uh, ultimately prove to be a matter of a life or death situation for him. Uh, when his car had, cra- when something had broken his car, he crashed heavily, and his car uh, caught fire. And only with the assistance of uh, of uh, 
uh, of fellow drivers was he extricated from his burning car. He had suffered burns over most of his body. He had suffered multiple fractures. In fact, his condition was so bad that he was the minister of the last rites in hospital, meaning that there was not a chance that Nicky Lauder was going to survive this. Yeah, and it's and pretty much due to this incident, whether he had survived or not, it became clear that racing on circuits of that length was no longer feasible anymore. That was pretty much one of the reasons why uh, the FIA, you know, introduced a maximum circuit length limit where, mm-hmm. you know, circuits like the, the Nürburgring Nordschleife could not be used anymore after 1976, where not only is it hard to, you know, manage a circuit of that length, make sure that you have, uh, you know, fire and safety uh, personnel, you know, at consistent intervals along the circuit length, but just during the race itself, the, the weather, where it was raining at the start of the race, but it was dry in some spot, spots, so it was hard to make a tire choice and you know a lot of the teams opted for the you know the quote-unquote faster tire the slick tires over the treaded wet tires lauda again faced a a long recovery where you know you know there was talk that he would not survive the crash and then something amazing happened he missed only two races in six weeks of racing through intense recovery um, after surgery to repair as best as he could some of the scars left behind from the from the fire at the Nordschleife, Lauda came back just three rounds later at the Italian Grand Prix and finished a respectable fourth place to keep his championship hopes alive for the rest of the season. He bolstered that with a third place at Watkins Glen before it was taken to the final race in monsoon conditions at the inaugural Japanese Grand Prix at Fuji. Lauda, of course, retired, um, stating that it was just too damn dangerous to drive in those conditions, and ultimately conceded the title to his great friend and rival James Hunt in the process. Yeah, it's... uh, I think it's one of those moments where... I I wouldn't say... it wasn't obvious to fans at the moment. I'd say that's more personal than anything else mm-hmm. where you realize where sometimes it's, it's just too dangerous to race and no one's ever going to stop you from racing. No one's ever going to call off the race because you personally feel it's too dangerous to race. You mm-hmm. just have to make the decision on your own. Well, no, I agree. Uh, that was something that was, um, you know, in some respects, you could say that was a very brave decision, you know, because drivers weren't, I guess, uh, if I could find a way to say it, you know, racing drivers, they, they often, especially nowadays, they thought of themselves as gladiators. Um, and Lauda, I guess, had the courage to kind of pull back and realize, you know, you didn't have to race in such conditions. You could pull back and live on to race another day. Um and ultimately he did, and Lauda was champion again in 1977 with three victories, ten podiums. He'd wrapped up the title after finishing fourth in Watkins Glen, and then with two races left to go in the season, and perhaps with a strained relationship at Ferrari, Lauda left and moved on to Brabham, where once again he was a winner. He won uh, he won races with Brabham in 78, including at Nandersdorp with the infamous Brabham BT-46 fan car. 
Um, he won in Anderstorp, he won at Monza, and then he went through the 79 season, had a slump, and then before the Canadian Grand Prix, Lauda called it quits. He was a two-time world champion. He'd already proven his worth as a driver. He went on to focus on his own business. Um, if he had called, if he had completely hung it up and never came back to Formula One, uh, I think safe to say Nicky Lauda would still be remembered as one of our great champions in the sport. Yeah, like what two-time world champion? There's like Two. pretty much no doubt about it. Like I, I think it's easy to say that you have to be one of the sports greats if you're able to win two world championships right he went on to form his own airline nikki was an avid fan of aviation and even to this day there's uh there's an airline that you know has been repack repackaged and rebranded many times but there is still a nikki lauda themed airline but the racing bug never really left and for an unprecedented $3 million a year in 1982, Nicky Lauda made one of the most publicized comebacks in Formula 1 history. And it only took him, uh, it didn't take him long before he refound the magic when he won uh, his third race back in his comeback at Long Beach. Um, he was, um, he of course went on to finish uh, fifth in that year's championship. Um, but of course he was also... Uh, directly involved in the uh, the driver's strike because 82 was a tumultuous year between the drivers, uh, the constructors, and the sanctioning body, was it not? Yes, it was. And mainly one of the things that, one of the things that stuck out to Nikki about the whole situation when the FIA was trying to introduce the super license was mm. effectively, for those who are familiar with baseball in a way, uh, the FIA wanted to essentially introduced a reserve clause to to racing where the team held your rights the rights to your contract for three years you couldn't race for anyone else for three years yeah and was and he fought for the he was really one that fought for the agency of drivers as you know racing as you know drivers began to become uh, better compensated for the work uh, that they did uh, Lauda, in his second, in the second phase of his career, was still as good as he ever was. Two wins in '82, a bit of a down year in '83, as McLaren often struggled to qualify for races. In fact, he missed the 1983 Monaco Grand Prix. But out of that qualifying strife, you got some brilliance, like Lauda coming from 23rd on the grid at Long Beach to finish in second. And for those of us IndyCar fans who know, Long Beach is not exactly an easy place to pass, but Lauda gained 21 positions and finished on the podium uh, for one of only two podium positions that year. And once McLaren found a partner in Tag Porsche, uh, in 84, Lauda found the championship magic once again. And he did so paired alongside a new young face in Alain Prost, fresh over from the Renault team. McLaren had two of the best drivers, an aging, proven veteran champion in Lauda and a emerging young star of the future in Prost. And although Prost was often many times the quicker of the driver between the two head-to-head, Lauda wouldn't go away in this championship fight. No, pretty much any time Lauda could get the car across the line, he was either going to be first or second. And it was it, it was a contention season where if 
not only did he have to face off against the likes of teammate Alan Pross, but have to hold off again, hold off Nelson PK and Brabham. Yeah, and it it came down to a situation where, especially at the, you know the start of the Turbo era, where a lot of people had unreliable uh, engines, it came down to who can get who can not only get their car across the line first, but who can just get their car across the line. Period. That's true. Lauda started the '84 season retiring from. I want to say this is uh this is five. Excuse me. Sits out of his first nine races, um, but afterwards he went on an incredible tear. A win in Britain, second in Germany, a win in his home race in Austria. The only time that a hometown driver has won the Austrian Grand Prix. Second in the Netherlands, a win in Italy, and a fourth place finish at the European Grand Prix at the Nurburgring, the new Nurburgring circuit, mind yep. to set up a title-deciding race in Estoril in Portugal. And by the slimmest of margins, just a half a point, with a with a second place finish behind his teammate Alan Prost, Nicky Lauda secured his third championship, putting him in what is still elite company to this day. Yeah, and pretty much the the next year, uh, the next year didn't turn out as well. The McLaren wasn't as reliable of a, of a car. Uh, it. <laughs> Yes, the the McLaren pretty much couldn't perform. I think Lada also ended up in a pretty bad accident during the season, had to miss a race. But uh, that that pretty much closed the door on Nicky Lauda's Formula One career as a driver. Of course, he did uh, come back to uh, to become a, in managerial roles. Uh, 1993, he was offered a consulting role at Ferrari. Uh, 2001, he took on his first uh, team principal role with the Jaguar F1 team, but unfortunately, things just didn't work out. But his greatest role as a F1 executive came when, in September 2012, he joined Mercedes-AMG Petronas F1 team, who again were, at this point, an upper midfield team that won a few races. They had two very good drivers in Nico Rosberg and the now-retiring Michael Schumacher, but Lauda was part of a plan that was being put into place to help build the Nets dynasty of Formula One, and he had a key role in bringing in the most sought-after free agent on the market, Lewis Hamilton, out of McLaren, away from potential destinations like Ferrari and Red Bull, and he brought him to Mercedes. And I can still remember to this day, uh, NBC Sports uh, commentator and former driver as well, David Hobbs, saying that this would never work out, that Hamilton was a fool to join Mercedes and leave McLaren, and that Nicky Lauda bring him in would just be the kiss of death to any aspiring program. Well, as it turns out, uh, Lauda ended up being one of the executive figureheads of, of the new dynasty of the sport. Uh, the team made a significant improvement in 2013, and with the start of the hybrid turbo era, um, thus began one of the greatest runs of dominance ever. Five world championships likely to be a sixth. Um, the great battles between Hamilton and Rosberg, and later Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas. When, when, uh, and Lauda had a, Lauda had a tough time, of course, managing when Hamilton and Rosberg were at their, their feistiest. Like, kind of stepping back one second, where uh, it wasn't, clear about who Mercedes would 
signed to replace Michael Schumacher, and whether they were replacing Michael Schumacher in the first place, or where uh, Lauda and the executives at Mercedes had to make the decision for Michael himself, because Michael was taking too long to, you know, make the choice to stay or go, mm-hmm. and it seemed like uh, it seemed like the Mercedes board had a driver in mind to replace uh, to replace a Schumacher. They Mercedes were pretty much almost set on having Nico Hulkenberg, while Lauda was convinced that he could get Lewis Hamilton. That's true, and um, if not for, for that doggedness, you, who knows, we, we may never... For, the landscape of Formula 1 would certainly look much different without Lauda's influence on this team, and of course, um, he was always uh, a constant presence alongside uh, team principal Toto Wolf. Um, he was as integral to that to that dynasty as as anyone of course he he uh, had to take uh he had to take time off um after a a lung transplant in august of 2018 and we were hoping to see him back and ultimately will never come to be you know we mentioned as well that lauda was heavily involved in aviation um one of his planes had 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 a disastrous crash and in fact lauda's involvement um and the investigation of Lauda Air 004 actually led to Boeing uh, changing the design of the thrust reversers on the 767 and catching a flaw that they might not have otherwise spotted. Saying that they might not have otherwise spotted is kind of mm-hmm. uh, very generous on Boeing's part, where mm-hmm. Boeing tried to, to blame the incident on the airline and pilot error, and Lauda volunteered that he that he would get in a in a Boeing seven six seven three hundred and try to recreate the same conditions and try to save the plane, and Boeing pretty much had to admit that he that they wouldn't let Nicky Lauder do that because Boeing felt that it was irrecoverable. Yes, um, so Lauder as a man, of course, uh, has been through had been through it all. He lived an amazing life as a as a driver as an executive as a businessman and as a as a hero of our sport um really um king what is the one thing you'll you'll take away most from from the legacy that nikki lauda leaves behind who the most i'll take away Mm. that i don't know it's it's it feels like the most takeaway from nikki lauda is that uh racing skill isn't natural that it that it's a learned skill and if you try hard enough and if you dedicate yourself hard enough you can be the best in the sport that's true and i'll i think a lot of people will remember his perseverance in one of the greatest comebacks in in sporting history and we of course come from a sport where you know we of course a more contemporary example alice alice and artie's come back from from losing both legs in a crash to continue a, a, an excellent motorsport career and become an Olympian. Lauda uh, stared death in the face uh, at the Nürburgring in 1976. He was a burned and broken man, and, you know, it was often, uh, yeah, that's true. Robert Kubitz as well, Billy Monger, uh, recent winner of the Pau Grand Prix, uh, more other more contemporary examples. Lauda um, should not have survived that crash. And six weeks later, he was back in a car. You would never, ever see anything like this again. Um, but no one would, no one would put themselves through that. 
Nobody would need to put themselves through that, but Nicky Lauda had a point to prove. He wanted to win a championship, and he was willing to do anything that he could um, to to win it. So he came back, arguably well before he was even ready, and finished out the remainder of the season from Italy onward. It was one of the great stories in all of motorsport, and you know I'm glad that we glad as well that you know if you if you haven't already seen the movie rush a movie that has genuinely got some of my best friends uh into motor racing um just from watching it it's a it's a larger than life story that you know yes some of it is dramatized but most of the story is real and you know nikki lauda's story is uh is one of the all-time greats yeah and where it's like I, i'd highly recommend watching rush it isn't 100 percent accurate but i'd say it's 100 percent authentic Absolutely, it encapsulated everything that was Nicky Lauda as as a per, as a driver and as a person. Really, um, there were many many tributes uh, in Monaco from drivers like Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel wearing special helmet designs to honor the late three time champion. From the pre race and post race ceremonies, where drivers wore signature red caps um, with Nicky on the front of them. You know, it's uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, one of our friends of the show, Patrick, said that Nicky Lauda nowadays is the only uh, white dude wearing a red cap with white tats that you can trust nowadays. <laughs> as as bitter and as cynical as it sounds, it was it was very much true. Lauda wasn't going to bullshit you. Um, Lauda was going to give you everything as a driver and tell you exactly what it's a lot as a as a person. And uh, where I think our sport is, our sport and our world is going to miss a driver like that. Um, so Godspeed, Nikki. You lived one awesome life, and we celebrate that fondly. After this break, we'll be back to discuss the Monaco Grand Prix. So... We made it to Monaco, the first act, I guess the warm-up act of Day of Classics 4, your, uh, your, your pre-game for the Indianapolis 500, and uh, nothing fits the pre-game atmosphere like having Cleveland Browns star Odell Beckham Jr., which is crazy enough to say as it sounds, because Monte Carlo, it's the only place where you won't be criticized for spending a weekend on a boat. <laughs> and man, there's, like... There's there's so many ways that Cleveland is different than Monte Carlo. I'd never assume <laughs> that a Cleveland Brown would be at the Monaco Grand Prix. That's true. You know, with Tom Brady last year, obviously the Nets' great step is to get one of the top stars from the Cleveland Browns, perennial doormats of uh, the NFL. Um, we went in this race thinking that there was uh, there was going to be an expected outcome, and sure enough, and especially with a lot more emotion attached to it. Lewis Hamilton did take pole position, and Lewis Hamilton did go on to win the race. Um, Hamilton pretty much led convincingly for the whole shot. I'll take only one pit stop, and even though he was driving on badly blistered medium tires, and you know he himself over the radio was, uh, you know, Monaco's a long race. We mentioned in 194 that it's gotten shorter um, for television's sake, but it's still a, a grueling race for these drivers and. Uh, Hamilton felt like he didn't have enough in his tires to go the distance, but eventually he did by by way of backing up the field mostly. Um, a commanding drive, maybe not the greatest of his career, though. I, I think it's fair to say. 
Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say the greatest of his career. I'd say it was definitely it was definitely a hard fought win. Where it's yeah. like it was no doubt it was a hard fought win. Um, he had consistent pressure from uh, from Max Verstappen of the Red Bull Honda, who almost split the two Mercedes of Lewis Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas from uh, from Turn One out of Santa Vat. Ultimately settled in behind Valtteri Bottas, but as we would come to find out, the race would take a sudden turn during the middle of the first safety car intervention. Yes, it took wild turn where Mercedes decided for their pitch strategy, they were just going to double stack their cars. They asked Botas to purposely drop back during the during the, the virtual safety car so they'd have enough time to double stack. They wouldn't be literally one behind the other. But mm-hmm. Botas dropping back left a gap that uh, Red Bull th- thought that it could use to their advantage, where, right. where they were just stopping for Stappen. Let's see how this works out. Uh, they release Verstappen. Verstappen is ahead of Botas, but not ahead by a full car length. He isn't clear of Botas. No, they they make contact, and that contact ultimately gives Botas a slow puncture where he'd have to pit a second time and concede second place on the road. For that, Max Verstappen would pick up a five-second time penalty that, as much as as he was chasing down Lewis Hamilton in the closing laps, he'd have to feel like, yeah, even if he gets around him, he's still not going to win the race. You know, so it's a it's a brilliant effort, but ultimately with that five second time penalty looming, it's not going to mount for much, is it not? And then something else that we learned after the race, Verstappen botched a critical setting change during his pit stop, or he's or he went to you know low torque mode to to easily launch out of his pit box and pit lane, but forgot mm-hmm. to turn it, uh, forgot to turn it back up. What do you what do you oh. left pit lane? Meaning that he essentially had no low, like no low speed, like no low speed power. So he effectively handicapped his own car. He had essentially turbo lag. Oh goodness! And you know, I was watching for um, and try and chase down, and it's clear that his car was hooked up through the corners. But you know, let's say as they come out of the bottom of Mirakboat through the tunnel and into the Novel Chicane, it just looked like um, the Mercedes could always pull away in what short, short straights there were. Um, and, you know, certainly having the car not optimized for the conditions, that didn't help. No, doesn't help at all. Where it, during the race, watching it live, you always, you felt there was tension behind Lewis Hamilton. That, you know, Hamilton's tires were spent. And you could clearly tell that. But it didn't add up to the other side of things where it's like, how can how can Max Verstappen not be able to keep up with Lewis off of the straights? It can't be just simply a power unit advantage. Something was clearly not right completely. And I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say that, you know, Red Bull botched a chance at a win, because for other reasons, like I don't think Verstappen would have been able to pull, you know, a five second gap, but they had a chance and effectively due to literally driver error, it got thrown away. Yeah. 
and Verstappen made one last valiant lunge at the Nobel chicane uh, with just a couple of laps to go. I believe this was uh, three laps to go. Uh, the two of them made slight contact under braking. They both carry on, and that effectively ended any chance of Max Verstappen had of getting around Hamilton on track. And that was the climax of the action. You know, there were uh, Verstappen was lining up for a move that seemed like it would never come. As I described it, it was like one long, drawn-out foreplay session where eventually nobody really wants to do anything because they're not in the mood for it. Yeah, and it, and it wasn't just out front. It felt like that throughout the whole field, except for one Ferrari driver. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so to tell the story of how Charles Leclerc ended up uh, where he was at, we have to go back to Q1 on Saturday you know, typically, you know, if the if the race at Monaco is not going to be fun, you know, at least qualifying, you know, you're going to get a good show because it's the tightest track. It's the most demanding uh, track and time trials or qualifying. It's always a good spectacle. But safe to say that Ferrari may have uh, may have boxed themselves into a corner just a bit. Yes, they boxed themselves into a corner where uh, in Q1, it, it clearly you could tell that they were going... They were planning on having two runs for each of their drivers, where you have, you know, your banker lap, and then you're going to go for it for your second run. Uh, for Charles, on the other hand, that he he pushed the margins to the limit to the point where they couldn't send him out for a second run. Yeah, yeah, he had uh, he had messed up on both of his uh, qualifying attempts, and then of course there was the incident where he was summoned to the Weybridge and you know missed it, uh, and was botched, and you know Ferrari thought they had enough time to send him back out, uh, you know that they didn't have to send him back out. I should say he would be safe to go in, and then you found himself where both Leclerc and Vettel were were at risk of getting bumped in Q one on a track that is notoriously difficult to pass on. Vettel does save his skin and get his way into Q2 with a flying lap, but Leclerc is still in the garage and has no time um, to uh, to get back into the fray, and he is eliminated after Q1 and has to start and qualify 16th. I believe he eventually moves up to 15 due to penalties, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, due to penalties, mm-hmm. but it was... The, it, their tactics were highly questionable. Like, yeah, uh, f- like for one hand, it, <laughs> pretty much. I know it's 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 perplexing, and I wish we had Dre on here because I know uh, I know he would have some choice words for this strategy, and so did everybody else for that matter. When uh when when friend of the podcast uh, Stuart Chaybear Taylor is out here making uh, parody videos, how telling Ferrari how to do their own job <laughs> uh, with 1980s graphics and the full works, you know that you have messed up very very badly. And this ironically coming after they shortly shortly after they did a presentation on winning strategy oh. a strategy is important as success <laughs> though like the the only reason i could come up with with why ferrari didn't want to send out leclerc again is that they thought the they thought the first time was fast enough and they didn't want to spend the extra set of tires to send him out again because that's literally the only cost to them sending him out again that they would have to use up another set of tires 
I think it would have been worth it. I think it honestly would have been worth it. But instead, you you put your driver behind an eight ball. And let's not forget, this is home race. Yeah. Yeah. First drive with Ferrari at his home race, a uh, race where he had struggled in Formula 2 and struggled at last year, um, carrying dual tributes on his helmet, one to his late father, Hervé, the other to his late godfather, Jules Bianchi. Um, so there was a lot of optimism going into this race, and we're thinking, this this is the weekend where destiny should tell us that if Charles Leclerc is going to win his first race, it's going to come here. Even though the Ferrari is not optimized for a track like this with its number of slow and medium speed corners and how the Ferrari is, let's just say, not compliant through them. Uh, yeah, and this had come right after Sebastian Vettel had bended at Sandovat in final practice and he was lucky to be able to get a qualifying run at all, let alone get into Q3 and uh, qualify in the, on the second row. But no, that puts Charles Leclerc in a position where he is starting from 15th. And he's going to get the most out of his money because he's picking off midfielders. A brilliant pass on Lando Norris at uh, the hairpin formerly known as Lowe's. Uh, he sends it up the inside of Romain Grosjean at Laras Cast, which is a tricky place to pass. But he has such confidence that he feels, all right, I can do this again. Let's try this on Nico Hulkenberg. But Hulkenberg slams the door on him coming out, and that causes Leclerc to collide with the barriers, do a quarter spin, and then that damage inflicts a puncture on his car that just shreds up his right rear tire, and, you know, that ultimately ends his race. He would retire after 16 laps. He was the only retirement in this Monaco Grand Prix. But there's no doubt about it. Leclerc should not have even been starting that far back to begin with. Yeah, it was. Oof. It. I don't know. It's Leclerc shouldn't have been in that position, but he also should not have been that aggressive out in track. Where, uh, there were you know one or two complaints in the press conference, like in the in the press pen about Leclerc from <laughs> other drivers, but like it's. Partly understandable, but also you can't be that aggressive. Yeah, and it seems like Hurrigan is a driver who is trying so desperately hard to impress his new team and to prove that he is worth every bit that Ferrari have invested into him. Um, he has world championship potential, but especially early in the stage in the season, you know, he's he's driving a bit too hard to try and impress. You know, he's he's still a young kid. He turns only 22 this year, um, so he's got time to develop. And I stress this to everybody, especially the Leclerc fans who are listening to this, because I believe highly in the talents of Charles Leclerc, but you've got to be patient with him. You've got to give him time, because let's not forget, Lewis Hamilton didn't win his first race with Leclerc when he debuted. Jacques Villeneuve didn't win his first race with Williams when he debuted. You know, M Michael Schumacher didn't win his first race with Benetton when he first showed up. You gotta yeah. give the t you gotta give him time, and he and he'll learn with time. He knows that you know qualifying. You know, yes, he shouldn't have been put out there in strategy, but you know, hey, if he didn't mess up his first banker lap, maybe he wouldn't be in a spot where he'd desperately be needing to try and put in a second. And then we already have the Italian rag sheets trying to stir the pot, where they are claiming that. Leclerc and people associated with Leclerc putting out feelers to other teams. For for what? There's no other team that'll take him that'll give him the equipment that he needs to succeed. I know Ferrari's dysfunctional, but where else are you going to go and have the same success? Yeah, it's like 
it would only be Mercedes. That's the only place where he could go and not be in a worse position. And I don't know if you know this, but spoilers, Valtteri Bottas' job is no longer at risk, barring an absolute catastrophe late in the season. But yes, uh, Charles Leclerc, only retirement of the race. Uh, In the end, Lewis Hamilton takes win number 77 of his career. This now puts him 14 back of Michael Schumacher's once untouchable record in his 85th pole position, which makes me think by the time he hangs it up, uh, Lewis Hamilton will get to 100 pole positions. Uh, Perfect weekend, no complaints whatsoever. Uh, Matt Verstappen did finish fourth on the road, did win driver of the day. Uh, He was second, but eventually demoted to fourth because of his time penalty. So that meant that Sebastian Vettel, out of all this, Despite the crash crash of Friday practice, by a car that was not compliant for not suited for this track, somehow goes on to break the 1-2 streak of Mercedes by just a half a second over Valtteri Bottas, who, again, his race was effectively compromised from the moment he had to pit a second time for his slow puncture. Yes, and I do love how Sebastian said, quote, I sort of tumbled into second place. He knows that he knows that this if on paper he probably shouldn't have finished this high up, but you know it was you know I don't think he's complaining about that result. Of course, we got the great photo um, that we're using as our podcast cover of Hamilton and Vettel with each with their own Nikki tribute helmets, uh, embracing and shaking hands apart from me, which was really really awesome to see. Um, perhaps the start of a turnaround for Sebastian Vettel even as some are reporting that he might be considering hanging up, which I don't believe that either. It's the same with the, it's the same with the, uh, the Leclerc, uh, the rags that are stirring up. I, I don't, I don't see it happening. Nothing would surprise me, but again, I just don't see it yet. Yeah. There's, I, I don't see it either. There's like maybe like that slim chance that you can retire from Formula One, try something else, but I don't, I don't very slim. Yeah. Yeah, I think ultimately he does want that one more title with Ferrari before he hangs it up. It's just got to start coming together soon. And if not now, then when? Uh, with Max Verstappen being devoted to the fourth, Pierre Gasly, now he was not in the lead fight, but he looked a much more confident driver. He got the bonus point for the fastest lap because it was still far ahead of the rest of the field that Red Bull could afford to pit him a second time and not have him lose any track position. Uh, another good race for Pierre. Again, still a little bit behind Max Verstappen, but again, it's Max Verstappen, arguably the form of his life. I would say that, you know, this race was probably the first sign of, you know, the bad habits of the old Max Verstappen. Again, that unsafe release wasn't all entirely his fault. He was just given the signal to go, and he went. Speaking of Formula 1.5, how about Carlos Sainz? <laughs> On a weekend where we all lamented the struggles of a Spaniard at McLaren, well, at least one Spaniard in another McLaren had salvaged a little bit of dignity from the boys at Woking. Uh, thanks to a brilliant double overtake on the first lap, gets past Alex Albon coming out of Sandvot and then swoops around the outside of, at Casino Square around Danica Via to take Sitz's place. Uh, joint best result for McLaren this season and his best finish since joining Renault uh, into, uh, the, earlier this season. King, uh, King, are you starting to feel like maybe the Carlos Sainz of old, the Carlos Sainz that we voted driver of the year, is he starting to make a comeback? Oh, I, I think he never went away. I think it, I think it was the Renault that was just bad. 
Oh, and we'll we will uh, we'll we'll talk about that in a second. But along with Carlos Sainz, a, a team that had an impressive weekend from top from start to finish: Scuderia Toro Rosso Honda, Danny Kvyat in seventh, Alex Albon in eighth. Brent, fantastic performance from Toro Rosso this weekend. They were pretty much top ten all session all 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 weekend long. Ooh, yeah, it's. The Tarasso looks very good this year. Very good this year. And should I point out, this is Kvyat's best result since being dropped from Red Bull to Tarasso uh, early in 2016. For Albon, that's his best career result. And you feel like that's only going to prove for there if Tarasso get more chances to see like this. Also, all four Honda power cars on the grid inside the top eight. So, uh, so McLaren gets to succeed without Honda, and Honda gets to succeed with Red Bull and Toro Rosso. Now, of course, uh, speaking of Renault, again, uh, Nico Hulkenberg did effectively become Formula 1.5 champion, but not necessarily their best day when reigning and defending Monaco Grand Prix winner has Daniel Ricciardo has to scrap to finish ninth. Oh, boy, that, that bet's looking really safe, King. I just gotta say. <laughs> And uh, I forgot, I think it was the Sky F1 feature where they were discussing Renault and how Renault is, they described Renault as going through growing pains, how they're, you know, expanding facilities. They broke ground a new facility at Fury for the, for the power unit side of the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have all these new employees at Endstone and they feel like uh, they're going through growing pr- pains where, where, because of, you know, trying to integrate everyone into the organization. A lot of things are falling through the cracks. Upgrades are being developed, but not actually making it to the car. Yeah, and for a team that's investing that much into their F1 program, you just got to feel like that's not satisfactory. Ricardo would actually finish 10th on the road, but because Romain Grosjean picked up a five-second time penalty for cutting the pit exit line, uh, that puts Ricardo in ninth and Grosjean in the final points-paying position in 10th. They were among the last of the lead lap cars. The last was Lando Norris in 11th, uh, just outside of the points by five seconds. As we go through the rest of the finishers, Sergio Perez had a massive Code Brown moment during the safety car, did he not? Oh, man. Like, first I saw the picture, then I saw the video. And And then you saw the alternate angle of him almost uh, striking down two marshals uh, coming out of the blind pit exit during the safety car. Um, the marshals were there picking up debris on the track. Perez just didn't see them coming, and it was very lucky it didn't end in tragedy. Yeah, luckily enough, there was a car-shaped gap between the two marshals. Oh goodness, yes. Uh, goodness, that was that was a that was a close call there, and and I'm glad that everybody came out of that all right. And I'm not here to portion blame on that. I'm just glad that everybody got through it safely. We mentioned the other Renault, Nico Hulkenberg, 13th, uh, a pretty pedestrian day for Renault. Kevin Magnussen was a surprise. He qualified sixth, started fifth, but slumped down to 14th in the end. Uh, just was nowhere really this race. A bit of a disappointment after Haas seemingly made steps forward in Spain. Uh, I'll tell you one driver who made a, did a fantastic job. I know it's only 15th, but bravo to George Russell. You're not the last place car on the track. <laughs> yeah, kept his nose clean, took positions where he could. 
And guess what? He finished 15th. Yeah, Robert Kubica finishing 18th. And I'll say that's a massive accomplishment because in the in the months and the years leading up to his comeback, what was always going to be the track that would give Robert Kubica trouble with the limited range of motion in his right arm? It was going to be Monaco, where you have to go full lock through Lowe's hairpin. But no, he finished the race. He was not the last finisher that would unfortunately go down to Antonio Giovinazzi in 19th and finished two laps down and was uh, penalized 10 seconds for uh, for causing a massive traffic jam at Loras Cass. <laughs> Goodness gracious, Alfa Romeo, what the hell happened to you? You look quick in practice and then all of a sudden it just goes terribly. And especially on Kimi Raikkonen the weekend of his 300th Grand Prix. Man, it's hard weekend for Alfa, but their recent slump continues oh my goodness yeah and especially when it wasn't until not wasn't that long ago when we were in preseason we were talking about alpha potentially being able to leapfrog the likes of renault and mclaren and haas and be the force of the midfield and um that's two tough races in a row for them where they just really haven't gotten it together i should also mention as well lance Stroll in 16th but you know peak Kind of got in the way of Valtteri Bottas just a little bit. I, I don't know what was happening there. And Lance, you're you're better than this. Antonio, you're better than this as well. What are you doing, lads? Uh, as mentioned, Charles Leclerc was the only retirement after 16 laps due to floor damage. Fastest lap went to Pierre Gasly on lap 72 on his final run. Um, so the Monaco Grand Prix. You grade this on the curve, King? Ooh, for Monaco's, it was okay. In terms of general F1 races, uh, could do a lot better. So I'd say overall, in terms of season grades, maybe four or five out of ten. It wasn't it wasn't terrible, but like it could be better. Dre made a good point during our day of classics for hangout uh, that the race was fine by Monaco standards, but because of the time penalty to Matt's Verstappen. It has no rewatch value. This is one of those just watch the highlights to get the gist of it kind of races. There's not really that much it would gain out of watching this from from start to finish. I'd, I'd probably say it's a good entry point into F1 in a sort of a bad way. You get a, a general picture of how the season is going for all the teams. Yeah, that's uh, that's very true, I suppose. And again, it just... You know, it feels like we have this discussion every year about whether or not F1 has outgrown Monaco. And it breaks my heart because Monaco's a really pretty track. It's a tra- it's a race with a lot of history. It means a lot to the teams and the drivers to, to win this race. They want to win this race, but nobody really wants to get up for this race. No, it means I... a lot to the, to the elite spectators. It means a lot to the drivers, but... It, doesn't really resonate with the fans as much as it used to. And that's sad. Like I know it's it's a very IndyCar thing, and F3 is actually experimenting it with it this year, but uh, maybe F1 could consider having not a completely different technical regulation rule set for each of the races, but try to, you know, classify the races differently so that there's a specific rule set to make the racing better at certain tracks. You know, funny thing, we'll talk about a different rule set of cars here uh, competing around Monaco soon. Um, yeah, I'm graining on a curve. I, 
I give it about a I give it about a six uh, Tesla Hyperlite ads out of ten. Um, so as we go into our championship standing, starting with the drivers, and again with four wins in the first six races, Lewis Hamilton has built up a 17-point cushion at 137 points over his Mercedes teammate Valtteri Bottas on 120. In third, Sebastian Vettel on 82 points. He has jumped ahead of Max Verstappen, fourth place on 78 points. Charles Leclerc slumps down to fifth. He's at 57 points ahead of Pierre Gasly on 32 points. He is sixth. Best of the midfield, Carlos Sainz jumping all the way up to 7th for McLaren Renault. He is on 18 points, 4 points ahead of Kevin Magnussen in 8th on 14. It's a two-way tie for ninth between Sergio Perez, a racing point, and Kimi Raikkonen of Alfa Romeo on 13 points. Lando Norris on 12, Daniel Kvyat in 9, Daniel Ricciardo on 8, Alex Albon on 7, Nico Hulkenberg on 6, Lance Stroll on 4, Roman Grosjean 2, Giovinazzi, Russell, and Kubica, the only non-scorers this season. To the Constructors' Championship we go. Stop me if you've heard this before. Mercedes have an almost unassailable lead in the Constructors' Championship. <laughs> they are on 257 to Ferrari's 139 in second place. Oh, man. Oh, how we long for the days where Ferrari looked like they had the weapon to challenge Mercedes, you know, before they had to fundamentally redesign the suspension of the front of the car. In fact, they're doing so uh, below par that Red Bull Racing Honda are within just 29 points. They're at 110 in third place. And the standout of the midfield, McLaren Renault on 30 points with a 13-point cushion to racing point in fifth on 17 points. And this is where it really starts to heat up because then you have Haas on 16, Toro Rosso on 16, Renault on 14, Alfa Romeo on 13, and all the way down at the bottom, there's Williams still at zero points. <laughs> I'd say the two point that two points that Renault got today really helped. They're no longer ninth now. Alpha's ninth, uh, but it really feels McLaren has kind of run away with the the one point five constructors title. Yeah, and especially at this stage because this is where things started to fall off for McLaren as we realized that their early season form last year just was not sustainable, and I'm. And, you know, if you're a McLaren fan, you have to hope that it's going to turn around and they're going to be able to keep this momentum moving forward because that's only going to set them up for bigger and better things down the road. So the next time we are going to see Formula One will be at the Canadian Grand Prix in uh, Charlie's homeland in Montreal at the Circuit Gilles Villeneuve. Um, this is a race where you feel like, you know, a Ferrari have a high-speed bullet um, this might be the track to get their season back on form because Montreal is a high-speed track and it's going to be punishing on break. And the only thing that worries me is that uh, Montreal is long straights and a lot of low-speed corners. How do you see this one turning out? Ooh, I'm more worried about the high-speed corners at, at, at Montreal, to be honest. I think that's probably going to be Ferrari's Achilles heel where it's like, they might be able to keep up in a straight line, but anytime you have to go through a high-speed chicane, it's not going to be good. Oh yes, that is uh, that's definitely true. And if you look just at the uh, at the recent form of this race, uh, uh, Vettel won last year. Hamilton won at the three years prior. Uh, Ricardo won in twenty fourteen. Uh, so there's hope for Red Bull Honda at least. Uh, that ought to be interesting to see how that plays out. 
let's uh let's take a bit of time to reset here and we'll get into formula two and in, in monaco because uh who boy there was some interesting <laughs> stuff that happened that week at Monaco uh man just the feature race what happened what happened apparently half the field lost a lap and a red flag and nobody could find a way to fix it because there was no way to fix it yeah there's no way in the rule book for you to just uh give half the field a lap back no, no, and this all was triggered when uh, when Mick Schumacher had run into Tatiana Calderon at Larascas and caused a traffic jam that brought out a red flag, and uh, more than half the field was accidentally scored a lap down as a result. Uh, Mick Schumacher, for his part, uh, received a, uh, I believe it was a drive through penalty for causing the voidable collision? Yes. Yeah, yeah, and that was, uh, that was coming at a point where, of course, Mick Schumacher was found at fault for a wreck that would have put him in prime position to win the race had he not been penalized because he was first among the runners who had already stopped for tires. Oh, and a lot of people were not happy with the stewarding that race, including his team Prima, where pretty much they felt like the the mandatory tire change, where where they made a protest to the FIA uh, and. FI said, race direction's right. We're, we're moving on with our lives. Yeah, it's the strangest thing, but, you know, in a familiar theme, the pole sitter ended up winning the race as Nick, they call him DeVries, uh, took the victory and ate up a huge chunk of Nicholas Latifi's points lead as Latifi would only go on to finish in 12th position. This is a big points day for the Dutchman, who, again, had just recently been sacked from McLaren's driver development program after being there for what seemed like 37 years. <laughs> Yeah, it it was good weekend on the whole for DeVries, where it's looking like he's going to be one of the contenders for the championship, especially considering what happened to his title rival, the current points leader, Nicholas Latifi, in Monaco. <laughs> yeah, um, I didn't get a chance to catch a lot of this, but apparently Latifi was driving with a little bit of extra uh, vigor, if you will, and not making a lot of friends out on the track. It's not making friends with anyone. A lot of, a lot of wheel to wheel. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say there was some contact, but a lot of it was like. Kind of what we criticized Claire for, for being too yeah, aggressive. Yeah, yeah, something like that, yes. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. Also, it looked like it was going to be a great day for Luca Giotto's title bid until he was disqualified for the feature race for his car using rack stops of a thickness that did not comply with the sporting regulations. Man, that <laughs> that's something you don't see often. So... So again, I'm I'm kind of an idiot when it comes to the engineering parts of the car. What's the rack stop do on this thing? Uh, I assume. Oh God, rack stop. I assume that is what stops the. Uh, it's basically what causes the steering wheel. <laughs> you were about to say it stops the it stops the rack. <laughs> it stops the rack. <laughs> oh my God. 
Yeah, that was, uh, so that got a DSQ and that promoted Nobuhara Matsushita to second in the feature race. Out of Sergio Sete Camera for Dams rounding out the podium in third. Out of Dorian Bocalacci in fourth. And Guan Yu Zhao last of the lead lap runners in fifth. And somehow they had no idea how to fix this. Um, Artem Markalov on his Formula 2 return finished in sits. Luis Delatraz. <laughs> Luis Delatraz in seventh and taking eighth and the feet and the sprint race pole, Antoine Hubert, because that becomes important as we get into Saturday's sprint race. Oh, baby. Why can't Monaco this be, be this fun this often? Yeah, why can't Monaco have, you know, <laughs> a situation where three cars could win the race on the last lap? <laughs> It looked like a redux of the Freedom 100 because at the end you had Antoine Hubert who was effectively leading the slides to flag, but Louis Delatraz was gaining on him, and Guan Yu Zhao at the end was putting on a charge for uh, for for a podium place, and he could have found him, fancied himself in contention for the win if uh, Hubert or Delatraz made a mistake. So King, take us through this uh, this incredible finish, which uh, thankfully Formula One have put the finish of this one up on their YouTube channel, so you can watch it anytime. It's worth it yeah so where the video where the video pretty much starts is mm -hmm. at final lap potier where it seems like uh you know on paper uh your leader your current leader is antoine hubert followed up by louis delatraz in the carlin mm -hmm. right by right behind him and it seems like if, if it's now time more than ever that's now but also lurking behind them in third it's Guan Hu Zhao. And uh, pretty much Johnny Herbert mentions that, you know, if any of them make a mistake here, Zhao can, Zhao can get second, maybe even first. Yeah. <laughs> so they run down, run down the new Val chicane. Uh, Delatraz gets a run, but not, not even, you know, a good enough run to make a lunch. But he's right on his gearbox. They go around to back. Same thing holds. Swing pool, same thing holds. Then they go around. Rascass and Hubert's back steps out just a little bit, but just <laughs> enough, just enough that Delatraz can make a run. So they go around Anthony Nogues, Delatraz is there, DRS open. Delatraz looks around, looks around, <laughs> looks around the left side, goes side by side, and then they cross the line. And if it wasn't for timing and scoring, I probably wouldn't have no known who won immediately from the camera angle. 59 one-thousandths <laughs> of a second. It was so close. So close. It was a it was a damn good race, and I, I thought Delatraz would have had him. He almost pulled in Oliver Askew to Antoine Hubert's <laughs> Ryan Norman. But uh, Hubert held on and becomes the first rookie to win a race this season. Uh, a great performance from Antoine Hubert. Uh, one that puts him now solidly into the top 10 in the championship. And I'll tell you what, just ahead of him in fifth place as we, we'll run down the full championship order, is it safe to say that Guan Yu Zhao has been the surprise revelation of the rookie class between himself, Hubert, um, let's say Correa, Schumacher, Calderon, and one other driver we'll talk about here? Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely say he's the breakout driver when you consider, you know, 
expectations going in, and then the actual results. Very low expectations going in. Again, he's the only driver from mainland China in the field. Only won a single race in the now-defunct European F3 Championship. Uh, but he's coming alive under Uni Virtuosi Racing. Let's go into this championship standings, because with DeVries finishing 7th in the sprint after winning the feature... He is now within one point of Nicholas Latifi, who finished 12th in the feature and 10th in the sprint, which was not a point-scoring result. Uh, double non-scoring result, uh, DSQ and a retirement from Luca Giotto now puts him well behind on 67 points. Jack Gaitkin, another double non-scoring result. He's still 4th at 62 points. Guan Yu Zhao in 5th, the top rookie at 54 points. Sergio Sate Cameron sits at 52. Antoine Hubert jumps up to 7th on 46 points. Louis Delatraz in 8th thir- in on 34 points. Dorian Bocalacci, very uh, very solid weekend for the young Frenchman. 4th uh, in the feature, 5th in the sprint, and he now moves up to 9th on 30 points with Nobuhara Matsushita at 10th on 26 points. He is tied with Jordan King, who of course was off doing something else in the Midwestern United States. I'm going to the Indianapolis 500. I don't know. Was that, was that worth missing for this? <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I mean, again, we're glad that Chris Mina is recovering well from surgery. Again, that you couldn't put that on Jordan, but you know, King just said it was technically possible that he could have done it because the races are all on Friday and Saturday and the Indy 500 Sunday. Yes. Technically it, it would have been possible, but, you would have had to miss, you know, carb day practice. Uh, maybe he had, maybe he had, you know, uh, requirements from his sponsor. Yeah, and of course, if uh, if you believe the the tall tales that they warned that NASCAR and ISC are trying to leverage the Indy 500 to move to Saturday, which <laughs> oh, Real you're funny. serious? Let me laugh even harder. <laughs> Um, also alarm bell should be ringing. I know it's early in the season and I know Mick wasn't a fast starter when he got to Formula 3, but he's 15th in the championship on 14 points tied with Callum Eilat. Yeah, literally Markolov showed up for one weekend and he's already 13th in the championship. With with two more <laughs> points than Mick Schumacher. I, I want to believe he'll get it turned around, but it's got to start soon. Um, let's talk about Mahavira Gunath then, shall we? <laughs> because I believe the best is yet to come. Because uh, it certainly can't get worse than his weekend in Monaco, where in his group of qualifying, he was five seconds off the fastest man in his group, Callum Islet, and would have missed uh, and was hundred more than 107% slower than the pole time set in Group B in the session. And somehow it managed to get worse. It managed to get worse. He thought he was in Charlotte. <laughs> oh my goodness. If you have not yet seen the uh, the long montage of him holding up uh, Jack Aitken throughout most of the race, this is a driver who, again, has never had a race on street circuits before, and certainly not at this high level of competition, and it showed. Um, there were multiple opportunities where Ragunathan could have made way for Aitken, and he didn't. That was arguably... The, the most blatant a screw job that a British driver had received at Monaco at the hands of an orange car by a mediocre pie driver since David Coulthard was held up behind Enrique Bernaldi in 2001. God, but not only did he hold up Aiken, 
He ended Aiken's race. Oh my gosh, yes, a 20-second time penalty for an avoidable collision with Aiken. Oh my goodness, how did Aiken react to this? That's what I want to know. Uh, let me see if I can Because I would, I would he, was, he was blocking like a F1 video game player. And of course, this should be a good time to remind you that Mahavir Gunathan has a website, and you can uh, you can email for sponsorship inquiries, and you can also donate uh, to uh, to become a personal sponsor of his journey, as he is ranked 17th in India per DriverDB.com. Ooh, and I can't I I can't find any quotes from Jack Aiken from the race weekend. <laughs> um, I would honestly I don't know, man. I would I would have been furious with him. I would have been ready to throw hands. Um, you know, I made this point over the weekend, and I again I didn't get to catch much of the races, but think back to some earlier Formula Two slash GP two punching bags we had. You know, you think of your Rodolfo Gonzalez's, your Johnny Chicado Juniors, your Sergio Canamasas, even your Sean Galeos, and you think they all look like Senate in their prime compared to Rangunathan, <laughs> who again comes in with very little high level experience. Yes, he has driven uh, a Toro Rosso F1 car on a glorified track day campaign and become a champion that be- by being the only driver that showed up for every race, but it's clear that. <sighs> He's a liability in F2. I, I'm going to come out and say it. And they, you know, if they, if Formula One can take away Yuji Ide Super License, a driver who's won races at high levels in GT500 and Formula Nippon, it could certainly, uh, you know, at least take the time to examine if Ragunathan is F2 caliber. And honestly, I don't think that's a long debate. Yeah, it's. His, his CV certainly doesn't say that he was prepared for this. It'd be one thing if he was slow, but dangerous is another matter. He's slow, both slow and dangerous. You know, it. I'll come out and say it. I would much rather have Char- Carmen Gorda in my car in her prime <laughs> than Rangunathan. Not gonna lie, that's true. Oh my goodness. That's, uh, I, I fear that's only going to get worse than it's going to get better, and at least... Now that they're coming back to permanent road courses, maybe they'll start to show some form. But if he if he has a repeat like that at Paul Ricard or Red Bull Ring, I, I'm taking his license away. And MP Racing's just got to find a new driver. I don't care how much money he brings. Yeah, you just got to find a new driver. Just don't run that car. <laughs> oh, my boy. Oh, and we almost forgot the sprint race start where he uh, PlayStation Stan Devot and gain eight places. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, granted, As that's that is a video game move. It's <laughs> a video game move. Y- y'all just given up on life so much that you just shortcut the entire quarter. <laughs> I mean, maybe we're overthinking. As much as we're trashing him, you know, he did manage to overtake eight cars in one corner in Monaco. I know it doesn't count. Okay, enough of that misery. Uh, let's get into the Berlin E-Prix. Let's go to the airport. And in one of the biggest wins for the private sector we've had, Lucas Degrassi took the lead seven minutes in and did not look back. Yeah, this was the Lucas Degrassi of season two. <laughs> like this is the this is the Lucas Degrassi that could not be stopped for anything. And uh, in qualifying, we got a glimpse of the Sebastian Wemmy that could not be stopped for anything as he took his first pull since Renault Edams became Nissan Edams, and he started on the front row alongside. Stoffel Van Dorn? On the front row? How could this be? How could this 
be? When 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 you thought that we were gonna see like, hey, remember Gen One? I remember Gen One. Stoffel's like, yeah, I remember Gen One too. I was in Formula One. <laughs> he had hot, he had such high hopes. Um, but it didn't take long for Lucas Degrassi to make his way up uh, from third on the grid. He quickly picked off uh, he quickly picked off Fandorn and he quickly picked off Lemmy. Took the lead with uh, with 38 minutes left in the race and never really looked uh, threatened at any point during the race. It was a 1.8 second margin of victory. Uh, over Sebastian Wemmy, so you're starting to get a feeling of an air of familiarity. You know, this one too, it 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 feels like it feels comfortable. It feels like you've been to this home before. Yeah, it feels like the cream is you know finally rising to the top. So congratulations, people who hated the early season chaos because <laughs> you don't like to have fun. You're getting exactly what you want. You're welcome. Welcome. You're in the traditional title fight between. Luke's Degrassi, Jean-Eric Verne, and uh, Buemi's back too, so. Yeah, Buemi with his, uh, with uh, with a second place finish, this of course would be his, uh, yeah, this is his best result since Marrakesh in 2018. That has been a long time between, uh, between a second place finish. In fact, this is first podium since Mexico City last season. No, excuse me, New York City last season. Wow. My apologies. Yeah, it's been a long time coming since we've seen Blemmy in a pole position. Again, this was a driver who, throughout 2015 to 2017, he looked unbeatable. Yep. I mean, how, the... How much, how much psychological damage did Montreal do to him? <laughs> oh, Lord. I would say the... the the fall of Reno and the rise of Nissan has been a very, very long one for Edams. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Oliver Roll—it's clear that the car has speed. Wemmy's been yep. on pole. Roland's been on pole, but they—they're clearly missing opportunities there. I have a feeling he's going to win one of these next three. But if he has any outside shot of winning the title, uh, he's got to start racking up victories in a hurry. Like now, there are only three races left. <laughs> And John Eric Byrne had a, had a pretty good day. Started eighth, but quietly and comfortably picked his way through the field to finish in third again. So another familiar podium. Degrassi man. first, Buemi second, Byrne in third. <laughs> yep. But man, John Eric Byrne showed why this track is great today, especially where they put uh, the the attack boat activation zone. Jev took full use of that, like. You know, we're, we're at the massive airport apron at Templehof, so the corners are real s- swung out wide. It's it's like Cleveland. It's like a European version of the old Cleveland circuit. Ah, uh, yes, Burke Lakefront Airport. Yeah, so the, they had the attack mode on the outside, and pretty much, if you went through the attack, if you got attack mode, you were pretty much activating it instantaneously and just riding the outside of the corner. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was very fun to watch. It was it was very much a risk reward with taking attack mode. I, I love the way they have it set up and Vern used it to his advantage. A, a solid back to back podiums and Vern after Hong Kong it looked like his championship hopes were dead to rights. But after two wins and now this third place finish, he's right back on top of the championship standings. Ooh, something changed. <laughs> Something stay the same. Now I'll tell you one driver who uh, who uh, had a very uh, there were a couple drivers who had uh, had tough races. There were only two retirements, but uh, 
Andre Lauderer had been Mr. Consistency throughout this season, but with a battery failure 28 laps in, uh, that's a massive blow to his title hopes after he already started 21st. So this was going to be a tough race weekend for him regardless, and now uh, Lauderer still third in the championship, but he really needs a good performance here in Bern before we get to New York if he's have any hope of realistically uh, staying in the title fight. Yeah, it's... You're gonna have to... This is you're gonna have to perform like this is crunch time part of the season where uh, I still remember back to you know Fleming's meltdown in Montreal. Mm-hmm. All reason why he was you know in that position to begin with is because he had missed the previous round doubleheader in New York because and of his WEC commitments. And who would he have been racing alongside him? Andre Lauder. Andre Lauder. Yes, and... that's right. He would have been racing him for overall victories. Ah, remember and, when the WC was worth watching? Yes. Though, in slightly, uh, we'll get to that news later, slightly, uh, to avoid the shenanigans that we got during the early seasons in the W, in, 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 in Formula E, where we had a lot mm. of driver changes, uh, Formula E had instituted a rule saying that you cannot change drivers during the last three races of the season. Mm. So... We're seeing some drivers kind of sending in their notices saying that kind of don't want to be in the series anymore. Yeah, Jose Maria Lopez of Dragon is apparently going to be the first to negotiate an early exit from his contract at Dragon Racing. He had had a very tough season, and apparently he's going to be out the door before we get to burn. Um, Can I tell you another driver who's having... Oh my God, pour one out for Alexander Lynn. This was looking like it was going to be his best day in Formula E. Of course, we we talked about his struggles at DS Virgin uh, coming in to replace Nelsinio PK midway through the season. And it looked like he was on pace for a very good day until the car just kind of crapped itself. Yes, and for... It, it, it was something that you kind of assume that Jaguar has moved past. Mm-hmm. Especially since they got their first race win earlier in the year, and that this was a big turning point for the team, but it feels like, uh, it feels like they they just expanded, <laughs> expanded what what how good they could be, but also how bad they could be. Yeah, it was a double non-scoring result because Mitch Bra only finished twelfth from eighteenth on the grid. A very disappointing day for Jaguar. A good day, though, for Andretti BMW with Antonio Felix da Costa finishing in fourth and Alexander Sims in seventh, uh, up from 11th place. Again, not quite the uh, the world beaters that they looked in preseason testing and right out of Saudi Arabia, uh, but still a very good day, and hell, it certainly couldn't get any worse in the last season. Am I right? <laughs> Uh, Saffel Van Doren season starting to come around. He finished fifth ahead of Daniel Apt in sixth. Oliver Rowland was eighth. Sam Bird, oh man, his late season slide continues in ninth. And Pascal Verline in tenth ahead of Eduardo Mortara by just half a second for that final points paying position in 11th. Mitch Evans in 12th. Robin Friends all the way down in 13th. Matsy Gunther in 14th. Felipe Massa in 15th. Gary Paffin in 16th, Jerome D'Ambrosio in 17th, Oliver Turvey 18th, Tom Dillman 19th, Pachita Lopez in 20th, as mentioned, the only two retirements, Andre Lauder and Alex Lynn, 28 and 23 laps in, respectively. Yeah. 
So how does this impact the championship standings, King? Let's look into it. So yes, on top of the championship is John Eric Vern with 101 points, followed by Lucas Agrassi on 96, uh, Andre Lauder on 86th in third, Antonio Felix Takasa in fourth with 82, Robin Friends in fifth on 81. Then we reach Mitch Evans in sixth with 69. Nice. Uh, seventh is Daniel Apt on 67. Uh, eighth, Jerome D'Ambrosio with uh, 65. Ninth is Oliver Rolden with 63 points. Tenth is Sebastian Buemi with 61. Sam Bird in 11th with 56 points. Eduardo Montara in 12th with 52. Tied with Pascal Verline. Uh, Felipe Massa in 14th with 32. Stoffel Van Dorn 15th with 30 points. Alex Sims 16th with 24. And Max Gunther in 17th with 10. Followed by... Paffett, Gary Paffett in 18th with 8 points, Oliver Turvey in 19th with 6, then Alex Lynn in 20th with 4, uh, Jose Maria Lopez in 21st with 3, Nelson P.K. Jr. no longer in the series in 22nd with 1 point, and Tom Dillman with 0. Tom so, Dillman, Felipe Nazar, and Felix Rosenquist, when we did the one race, all scoreless. And in the team's championship, Tachita still leads, but only by 25 points over Audi Sport in second place. Envision Virgin on 137 points. They're in third. They are just 13 points ahead of Nissan Edams in fourth. Mahindra slide down to fifth on 117. BMW Andretti in sixth on 106. Venturi in seventh on 84. Jaguar eighth on 74. HWA on 38 points. Giat's Dragon on 13. Neo all the way down in 11th on six points. They have not scored since Hong Kong. Now, I'd say... The, the driver championship is still very open. There's oh, yeah. still There's still 87 points left to play for. Yeah. So no one, everyone 16th or higher is still mathematically in contention. Though That's right. People, Start so, at Matsy Gunther down. Everybody below him is mathematically eliminated. Theoretically, it's possible that you can score 87 points by maxing out with wins in all three races with pole and fastest lap, but those would be dull as shit races. Yeah, I'd say realistically, everyone in the top five could still win the championship. That's true. Do you? Yeah, and again, this comes to Bern, Switzerland, which, again, it blows my mind that we're having circuit racing in Switzerland, and it's not a bigger deal than it is. Yep, for the first time in a long time. The Prix de Burn is back, and apparently, from what I've heard, the circuit's a real good one. It there's going to be tons of elevation change, uh, long Holy straights, baby. long corners. Uh, there's there's some worries about car performance, but <laughs> it's going to be a very entertaining race. That should be really, really fun to watch. Again, that's the final leg of the Volsalpine European Trophy. Uh, that'll be happening on June 22nd at the Burn Street Circuit before we head to the doubleheader in New York, Concrete Jungle, where dreams are made of at the Brooklyn Street Circuit on the 13th and 14th of July 2019 in Ryan Eric King's backyard. 
Yes, literally. no, it's not literally in his backyard. We we couldn't we couldn't get that graded for FIA safety purposes. I think I could fit one car in my backyard. It'd be like a Scalette Troops Formula kit. People tune in. What is this? What are we watching? Also, no, I, yeah, and I, I also to- want to shout out as well. Um, there's a new Formula E documentary, and we go green. And friend of the podcast, Hazel Southwell, is in it. Though it is unclear when we will be it, when us mere mortals will be able to see it, because it's still looking for a distribution deal at the Cannes Film Festival, which happened last week. Yeah, that's part of the reason why we have so many celebrities rocking up at Monaco. Yes, and for those who are interested in the Vost Alpine uh, European Races Cup, uh, currently in those standings, uh, Jean-Eric Verne and Andre Lauder are tied on two podiums each. Uh, if they score it based on how many podiums total you get during the European races. So, in theory, the only person who could win it is Jean-Eric Verne, because even if Andre Lauder gets a podium... Uh, Vern would have to not score a podium for Lauder to win it. It reminds me of my old European F3 German Grand Prix idea, where in place of an F1 German Grand Prix, we just scored all the uh, the European F3 rounds in Germany, and whoever scored the most was the German Grand Prix winner for that year. It's a brilliant idea, and I'm glad they took it. Congratulations, Formula E. Um, we're going to take a quick musical break. We've got a couple other stories to wrap up here before we get on out of here with this episode. So we'll be right back after this. So we had other racing that happened. Uh, we do want to just go ahead and see, uh, just uh, get through all that. Uh, of course, the dead dog party of Day of Classics 4, the Coca-Cola 600. Martin Truex Jr. blew a tire early on because everybody was popping right front and came back to win the race thanks in large part to a four-wide pass on the inside on the final restart. I think this is his second win at the uh, the Coca-Cola 600 because I remember him putting uh, an almighty beat down on the field uh, within recent years back when he was still with furniture row yeah, and joey logano came one position sort of roger penske doing the us 1100 sweep winning both indy and the coke 600 yeah it was from what i saw it was close but you know martin truex jr just pulled was able to come back and win it uh Besides that, that's all I know from the Coke 600. Because I was dead asleep. Class. I was yeah, dead I was asleep like... by that point. Not because this race wasn't entertaining, but just because I had no more energy left in me. Yeah, I remember <laughs> that. That was uh, 2016, where Truett's just just mollywopped the field. Oh my goodness! Um, Super GT happened at Suzuka Circuit. King, did you happen to catch any of it? No, I plan on watching it, but I haven't gotten to it yet. <laughs> So you may want to plug your ears and uh, hum a, tune, a nice serene tune to yourself as I tell you that Tom's Racing took a 1-2 finish led by Kazuki Nakajima and Yuhi Sekiguchi uh, in the number 36 AU Tom's LC500. That's Sekiguchi's second win in as many weeks and as many different series. And for Nakajima, of course, that gives him momentum going into his next race, some 24-hour race in the countryside of France that he won last year in a similar car. 
No big deal. <laughs> yeah, no huge deal. Um, Rio Hirakawa, Nick Cassidy, and the other comms. Tom Scar, the number 37. Uh, Keeper LC500 in second. Kazuya Oshima, Kenta Yamashita finishing third for Let's Team Lama in third place. Um, tough day at the office for Naoki Yamamoto and Jensen Button as they uh, they had suffered a puncture and finished outside the points. Not necessarily a banner day for Honda at a Honda-owned circuit. So as it goes... Also, Mori Onita taking his 22nd career victory in GT300 alongside rookie Sena Sakaguchi, who has only been in three races, only driven in two, and he already has two wins for his career. And he's 19 years old. And I think that had to feel a little good for him, considering he was let go by Honda last season. (laughs) Must feel fantastic. Yeah. Again, uh, watch it. It's on the model. It's free-to-air television service. Um, they will also have the race uploaded into many parts. Also, can I give a shout out as well that Super GT put together one of the first all-female broadcast teams for a motor race with their with their rebroadcast of the Fuji 500. Uh, Amy Azawa and uh, a lady by the name of Sonia, who works as an interpreter for the series, uh, both called the race on their official English language broadcast. Uh, so that's really cool to see. We also had supercars at Winton. Um, Scott McLaughlin is on his way to chasing history because, uh, as it turns out, Penske's dominance extends to all corners of the world. <laughs> McLaughlin took his ninth and his tenth wins of the season. There was a bit of controversy when he and his teammate Fabian Coulthard collided in the first race on Saturday. McLaughlin was told that he could rejoin the track while cutting nearly half the circuit, which he did. Fabian Coulthard got a time penalty for causing an avoidable collision. But uh, McLaughlin had those races handily, and now he's chasing history because the record for the most wins in a supercar season is 16 set by Craig Lowndes in 1996. There's still half the season to go, and unless they drop like 500 kilos of ballast into the Mustangs, McLaughlin's going to shatter this record. Yeah, what, he has 10 wins, he just needs six. He just needs six, and again, most of these are, are... two race sprint so he can rack that up in just a couple weekends oh no yeah you get it done before well yeah if he wins six in a row he'd get it done literally just before Bathurst my god (laughs) (laughs) and uh speaking of things that are terrifying King you have some news from the automotive world oh yes I do we're on the verge of the merger of mergers. <laughs> so FCA. how good? Yeah, how good does Fiat Chrysler Renault Nissan Mitsubishi Alliance roll off the tongue? <laughs> <laughs> so it it wouldn't be an alliance; it would be a flat out merger good between God. FCA and Renault. <laughs> so that would effectively mean, for instance, Ferrari, Alfa Romeo, and Renault all owned by the same parent company. Yes. <laughs> Goodness and gracious. Essentially, it's it's not a move that anyone involved wanted to do. It's it's a bit of desperation on on Fiat Chrysler's point where they're trying to cut costs and they feel like mm-hmm. easiest way to do that, just just become part of another company. Right. And of course, Renault Nissan Alliance, let's just say it's been heavily publicized that they've been through some much better times after the, the arrest and disgrace of Carlos Ghosn. 
Yes, and it's been estimated that the integration cost of the merger itself, before any potential savings, would be 3.5 billion euro on each side. Oh my goodness. It would save them 5 billion a year in the long run. It's becoming like the Fox-Jesse merger. Like, it's it's staggering and it's a little bit terrifying that, you know, so many companies are going to be all be owned under the same umbrella. Ooh, yeah, where we have three F1 teams owned by the same automobile conglomerate. That's not going to end well, I feel, because uh, Ferrari is what's going to make the numbers in Formula 1 if they had to cut one of their programs. Yep, it'd be Ferrari plus maybe one of the other teams surviving. Yeah, we'll see how that develops. And with that, King, have we omitted, missed, uh, forgotten anything? Uh, no, I think we're good. And with that, we draw the weekend, the greatest weekend in all of motorsport, to a close. And we hope you all have enjoyed listening to all of our content both shows as we put them out again if you haven't already go back and listen to episode 194 as we break down everything that happened at indianapolis with with us and our friend christopher hardy who is at the indianapolis motor speedway thank you so so much for being a part of this thank you to everybody who was part of day of classics for this past weekend as we watched monaco in the indianapolis 500 live we don't blame you at all if we missed we forgot there was an eight hour cutoff we were just having that much fun at the end of indy yeah and of course You can find all of our work at motorsport101.com. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Facebook.com at Motorsport101, YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport101. We're at Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101. And if you want to follow our personal handles, you can at Harrison101HD, at RJ O'Connell, at Ryan Eric King. That's with two Ks. And with your financial support at patreon.com or at slash motorsport101, all of this magic comes to you. For $5 a month, you get early access to all of our shows. For $10 a month, you can listen in as each show is being recorded. And we'd like to thank all the wonderful people who've come out and listened to us live. And again, thanks so much for being part of everything that was Day of Classics. We know we'll never be able to top this again for the rest of the season. Yep. Just, just. Shut, shut down come back next year oh goodness so what do we have next weekend we have the duel in detroit we have moto gp in rossi land and magello it's uh it's, we're, we're never short of excitement here we're just gonna pick right back up on it all right so with that out of the way for andre harrison and ryan eric king i'm rj o'connell thank you so much for listening to this episode of motorsport 101 and we'll catch you next time later y'all bye